Hey, what's up, everyone? You're listening to the podcast edition of The Cutting Room, the show where we talk to industry-leading marketing professionals about their philosophy, process, and pregame before they edit an article live. I'm your host, Tommy Walker, and thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Robin Showers, the Director of Content at Vimeo. In our conversation, we discuss how to optimize for search without rehashing everyone else, how to deliver something unique to the reader, and using different media formats for different needs. I hope you enjoy the show. Tell me a little bit about your content marketing philosophy and the effect that it can have on a business. Absolutely. Yeah. Content marketing philosophy. I, when you asked me this, it's a really hard thing to distill down into just a few succinct sentences. And so I feel like uh, I reserve the right to change it in the future. I'm just going to go ahead and say that's <laughs> forever. <laughs> but certainly right now, I am. So I am the director of SEO content over at Vimeo. And so I really do focus right now on organic content and how we can build sort of that evergreen library. So I have a lot of thoughts about search and uh, and a lot of thoughts about content in general because I've uh, been doing content for a really long time. So you name it, I've probably made it, produced it, hosted it, all those things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One is that I I think that search content has gotten a really bad rap. I think there's a lot of terrible, terrible content out there, but that when used correctly, search intent can be an incredibly powerful customer insight, that it really adds a new level to what we already know about our customers and that we're we're writing content to serve that, that we're actually serving the reader and not serving Google. We're not only serving Google, that we're having the exact same like Google and we are aligned in trying to serve the reader when we really focus in on search intent thinking about it as like one of the aspects that makes somebody who they are, things that they search for. I imagine that uh, looking at someone's search history is probably one of the most like intimate pieces of information you get about them. I can't imagine. And so I just, that's how I feel like that's how I approach that is not necessarily like we need to game the system, but more there are lots of people searching for lots of things. And a lot of those don't have great answers on the internet, you know, or they have like really hacked together answers. So how can we answer this in a more human way and hopefully be rewarded over time? So that's one that I feel like search intent is one of the pieces of things that tells you about your audience. It's not the only one. Another one, and uh, I know that this is a pretty common one and you've probably heard this from your other guests before, but that great content serves the reader. And I think that that kind of trickles down into a lot of different things. I think it trickles down into, I don't believe that content needs to be short or long or any one particular thing. I think content needs to be as long as it needs to be to do whatever the reader needs from it, right? So if you think about someone who needs to learn video marketing, everything about it and like really get up to speed before taking on a new job, they probably need a really lengthy very in-depth, many sections, piece of content to really serve as that kind of touchstone for them. When you think about someone who is scrolling through their feed and wants to be inspired, that's obviously a totally different need, right? And so deserves a totally different copy approach, a totally different video approach. So I think great content really like... I feel like we have a lot of debates over things where the answer is actually every SEO's favorite phrase, it depends. Um, so I think that also a hot take on quantity versus quality, because I feel like the answer is why not both? Because I think that when you put out a lot of content, if you're looking at your feedback loop correctly, that kind of teaches you a lot about your reader. That teaches you a lot about 
what they like, what they don't like. And it's really hard to guess at what's going to hit beforehand if you've not done many rounds of that, you know, many rounds of like putting out lots of articles or posting a lot on social and seeing what people tend to gravitate towards over and over again. A third axiom of my content marketing philosophy is that I think great brands are built over time. And so consistency, even though it's boring, consistency is king rather than content. Doing not necessarily the same thing over and over again, because I definitely believe in a test and learn approach to content as well as pretty much everything in marketing. But I think for content, one big splashy article or one big splashy campaign or video or whatever it is, is often what gets a lot of attention because it's sometimes more fun for us to create on our end to do something really out of the box. But if it doesn't line up with kind of consistent strategy with like something that your audience can over time depend on you for, and they know to come to your site, then I think that it's not delivering a lot for you. And then the final one is, I'm not sure if it's a content marketing philosophy as much as it's a management philosophy, but it's a little bit of both. My team has heard me say this time and time again, but it's that we can do anything. I really feel like the sky's the limit. You know, like Envision made a movie, like Drift published a bunch of books, you know, like we've hosted so many like virtual events from scratch where we thought it was going to be a webinar and then we ended up you know, creating this like multi-day experience. We can do absolutely anything that we can imagine, but we cannot do everything. (laughs) And so we have to say no to as many or more things than we say yes to. So there are a few things here. And I was sitting here taking notes as we're going along. I wasn't sure if you wanted me to keep going or if you want to... No, 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 this is good. (laughs) This is good. The more, the better, right? So there are a few things that kind of stand out to me in what you're talking about. So the first thing we're talking about is search intent and customer insight. I have a lot of my own philosophies on this more recently as I've been developing my own thoughts on this a little bit further is that we can't look at key phrases, right? It's very easy to fall into the trap of looking at key phrases that people might be searching for and thinking of them as checkboxes that we need to hit versus actual needs and wants and the why behind this stuff. How are you determining that? How are you thinking about intent and starting to use that to breathe life into the content that's being produced? Yeah, I appreciate that because I was very intentional about using search intent versus keywords for that exact reason. Yeah, I think there are a lot of keywords that have really mixed intent, right? Like a lot of people search them for different reasons. And so for that For that reason, it makes them really tricky for us as content marketers. Like we can go after them, but we have to go after them in sometimes a really limited way because we're serving our audience. But yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of... It's a lot of a guessing game. Like I wish it was a little bit more scientific than I feel like it actually is. But a lot of it is just going through the actual search results, right? A lot of it is looking at what Google is ranking for that. Is it all very similar content? Is it a lot of different kinds of content? Are they serving the answer right on the page? Meaning that it's more of a, someone needs an answer and then they need to move on with their day? Or is it more Is it more links? Is it more videos? Is it more showing that people actually have clicked on these things in the past? And so they are looking to get a little bit deeper into the question. It's looking at the articles and like, I am not... I feel like we often get into that skyscraper technique, right? Where we're looking at what there is and we're like, oh, I'll just write it a little bit longer. I don't think that does anyone any favors, but I 
do think that looking at an article and seeing what topics they cover and seeing what they've left out is a really helpful technique still. So not necessarily like they wrote 3,000 words, I'll write 3,500 words, but more like, right. yeah, you know, they covered 75% of this process. I think I can get the, the missing 25% in here. So we've got the combination of the actual information that's there. And it's really easy using the skyscraper technique. And I, I, we hear this a lot on the show now. It's really easy to remix the remix of the remix of the remix because that's essentially what the crux of that is. What are you doing to find those gaps and then address those gaps, even the similar, like address the similar things and the gaps in a unique way that even if the byline were taking off of it, it could still be very uniquely Vimeo? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like uh, we're always sort of asking that question. So another like reserve the right to get better over time at that. But I know we ask the question, like kind of what is our right to join this conversation, right? Like that's something that we ask at the outset of an article. Like what are we actually bringing to the table? Both as the writer themselves, because obviously everyone on the team has their own, you know, specific set of experiences. They have their own opinions on things that are backed up by what they've lived through or seen or read. What do different people in the company have to bring to the table? Like what out, yeah, what opinions do they have or what experiences do they have? But then also, yeah, because we are a fairly well-known brand, we also, I think, do need to consider what do people know our company as? And does that mean that writing about this topic is going to be an exercise in earning trust for something new? Or that writing about this topic is going to be coming from a place of strength? And, you know, really like making sure that we're staying very true to our brand tenants. So I don't think none of those are necessarily like, no, we don't write about this, right? It's just, but it definitely affects the way that we write about it. And then I think the uniquely Vimeo take on that is the fact that we would say writing is not our default format. And so looking at any piece of content and asking that question, right? Asking like, how can we tell this story better? And obviously the number one way is like, can we tell it better through video? But also can we like actually in the piece today, there were, there was one or two places where I was like, oh, this, I could see this as an infographic and I would have been able to grasp it much more easily if like this was visual. And so like, I think looking for those things, which I know that's a tricky one from an SEO perspective because Google doesn't always reward making things visual. But I think that is one of those places where you use the search intent to decide what to write about, but you use the human behavior to decide how to write about it and assume that, I mean, let's face it, Google is stupid smart now (laughs) Um, and it's only going to get better over time. So you have to assume that they're just going to get closer and closer. If it's working for the reader, it's going to pay off. I think the thing that stands out to me the most about what you just said here too. And it goes right back at the very beginning of what you said, which is what is our right to join the conversation? Do you feel like enough people are actually answering that question or asking themselves that question before they create? And especially in the places where you're actually competing against? That's a good question. I'd like to say yes, uh, to give everyone like the benefit of the doubt. Um, (laughs) But Yeah, I think that people, I mean, it's hard because I don't think that content should necessarily like content should be focused on the person that it's writing to the person that it's writing about, right? Like if you're using I too much throughout it, 
or we or any of that kind of language. Like you, you've taken a hard left turn somewhere and need to go back. But at the same time, yeah, I do think that, you know, there's that, that sense that you have to be, you have to be cognizant of who you are and what you're bringing to the table. And just, I don't know, just generally adding value. Like, I think that that is a conversation that we have a lot about the the different content that we put together. Because there are a lot of things that are interesting um, and that we want to... Sorry, that's my cat in the background. I don't know if you all can hear that through the microphone. Yep. Um, no <laughs> so there are a lot of things that we are bringing to the conversation. But like, what are the things that we can say that no one else can say? And I don't think you can answer that with every single article. I think there are some articles where you will just be, you know, like adding to the conversation as best you can. But there are absolutely some things where I'm trying to think of a really good example of brands where it's like they have a specific... I mean, certainly actually in the piece that we're going to edit today, it links to this Think with Google article about the messy middle and about buying behavior. Like if anyone has something interesting to say about buying behavior... It would be Google who changed the way all of us buy. So I think, yeah, acknowledging that is really important. Yeah, I'm not sure that enough companies do that. I think the ones that are really successful absolutely do. They like have a sense of who they are and where they're coming from. But yeah, there's a lot of rehashed stuff on the internet. And I think that's what we're constantly... My team is constantly fighting against like as an SEO content team. is like, we don't... It's just... It's gotten such a bad rap. <laughs> Well, and I think that's a lot of where SEO has probably gotten a bad rap over the last few years in particular is that a lot of brands that I've seen, I've worked with, and I've just observed is you get the big old keyword list. And then you're like, okay, we're checking off the keywords and saying, we need articles on this, this, and this. And it's like, what right do we even have to enter the conversation? You know, this is a software company that has nothing to do with restaurants, yet we're trying to do something with restaurants. Like... Um. What is that validity? If a company X sees, you know, that you're writing about this, like, I I love that. What right do you even have to be a part of that conversation? I think that's an excellent filter. What I want to do is use that as a jumping off point to talk about the planning process that you have. Tell me a little bit about your process and bringing these things together into something a little bit more tangible. How does that work into the content you're going to create? And how do you use that to also plan long-term and short-term? Yeah. And I think those are really different processes, right? Like one is much more strategic, like planning out what we're going to build long-term and then versus like, what is this particular piece's place in that bigger puzzle? What is best to start with? Uh, Let's start broad and then work our way down. Perfect. Cool. Yeah. So I think like planning kind of holistically, uh, great content. What are we going to make? I think you've got to start... Like if we start from the strategy personas, who are we speaking to, right? And there's lots and lots of different ways to uh, to gather that information. I think the one you should always start with is just actually speaking like directly to the people, as many customer interviews as you can do. I think that used to be my favorite. You know, We're not doing a lot of trade shows. I know that some of them are back, but like I'm, I'm, I haven't been to one in a while. But that used to be my favorite element of trade shows was that it was the best place to meet a lot of the people that I was writing for every day all at once in one go and to really, you know, really like have a good rethink about whether or not what we were creating was hitting that audience and really speaking to them. So yeah, personas, who are we speaking to? Like both getting qualitative evidence and quantitative evidence. What's that? I'm going to jump in there for a second because we actually hear who are we talking to a lot. I actually put together a supercut of 
who are we talking to? It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's something that it is absolutely true. Yeah. Tell me, can you dig <laughs> into that just a little bit more for what that process, that interview process looks like for you? Because it's very easy for us to say, you know, who am I talking to and do customer research and qualitative research? Can you dig into that a little bit more and then we'll kind of take that back out to the strategic level? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll tell you that it looks totally different for a content team than it does, for instance, like a paid media team, right? Which probably mm-hmm. wants to know it from a very like check the box kind of way. That's not, that sounds negative. I don't mean it as negative, but I mean that like they need to know the demographics, right? Like they need to know like, okay, like how old are these people? Like where do they shop? Those sorts of things. I think from a content team, I'm trying to get inside their head, right? Like I want to know what they think. And so the types of questions, I'm, I'm certainly going to start with like, okay, what is your role at your company? You know, what kinds of things are you doing day to day? But what I'm really trying to find in those interviews is a jumping off point to kind of be like, yeah, like there was an emotion behind that answer, right? Like, let's dig into that. Like, what is keeping you up at night? I feel like that's like a pretty, a pretty common question for those types of interviews. And it's for a reason, right? Like, what is like really top of mind right now? What really, you know, it sounds like that's frustrating. Like, why is that frustrating for you? I actually think that a lot of product teams and product marketing teams do this really well because they're getting into like what makes somebody, you know, click a button or not click a button or what makes a product actually sticky. And I feel like we need to ask the same questions for our content, right? Like the the user education, especially the user education, but even I think even thought leadership, even like some of the more media-like content that we're creating, it needs to serve a purpose and it needs to always like be correlated with an emotion. So I feel like that's, I feel like the nuggets are always in, like they're never the questions that I wrote down at the beginning of the interview. They're always the following questions. Well, and I think that's a good thing too, because we've talked about, you and I've talked about, and, and I know I've talked about this with a handful of people now too, is finding that emotional quality that goes into these pieces. And the key phrases are going to tell you what, but the emotional quality in these types of conversations are going to help you understand why people are searching for this stuff. And it's not just a matter of, I think my go-to example here is how to do your books, right? Well, how to do your books is something where you could just very easily put on the table, you know, here's how you do your accounting and your bookkeeping and blah, blah, blah. What most people don't think about or what, what I've seen not be kind of taken into consideration is that somebody might be searching for this thing because they're scared because they're going to get audited or their cash flow isn't what it needs to be. And even though you don't need to address those things directly, it is still something that you can think about and have as part of what you're doing when you write or create just in general, these pieces. Um, Does that ring true for you as well? It does. And the tone I think is going to be, because I could also think of that exact same phrase, like maybe an accounting student is, is researching it. Right. And that's going to be those articles should have such different tones because I, the accounting student, maybe they're nerding out over it, right? They're like, okay, I know the basics, but like, how do I do it better? Like, how do I really do it the way everyone should do it? Yeah, exactly. As opposed to somebody who's like, this is a grudge purchase or this is a grudge activity. I don't really want to do it, but I have to. And I just like, I just need someone to like, speak to me like I'm a human and tell me the basics. How does that idea 
play into the uh, planning process for you? Like, let's kind of bring it back to that second question there. What does all of this do for the planning broadly and then down on the individual level? Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, really, that is the foundation of all of the planning process, right? Is the, the who are we, who are we writing this for? Because out of that comes like, okay, positioning, why should they care? Story pillars, what stories are we telling and retelling, right? Because it's really, even though we're going to write about lots and lots of different topics, there are probably like three or four stories that we're continuing to tell over time, right? And we want to like continue to harp on those over time. Like maybe oh, I'm always bad at thinking of examples right off the top of my head. I'm I'm such a writer in that way that like I need to be like in in paper. So I won't try to think of one, but if it comes to me later, I'll bring it back up. No worries. No worries. Story pillars is a really interesting concept though overall. And we haven't talked about that a lot on the show. As you're planning out the story pillars and you're seeing these uh, sort of topics emerge, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on story pillars, and then we'll actually break into the pregame process. See how smooth it all ends up going. It's all so smooth. I love it. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah actually, story pillars are something that I I have, I think, incorporated in my planning process by accident in the past. And there's something I'm trying to be a lot more intentional about right now. So it's I'm kind of like forming my ideas on them. But what I like about the idea of story pillars is one, the fact is one, the idea that we're, we don't necessarily need to be reinventing the wheel every time. Like I think that we as marketers probably get bored of the message much more quickly <laughs> than our audience does. So kind of codifying that and putting it on the board or like writing it down in some way reminds us like we feel strongly that these are the messages that resonate. And usually, you know, we need evidence, right? Like we're going to test them. Like we're going to make sure that that's true before we go back to them time and time again. But also there's usually lots of different ways to say something or to tell something. And so like thinking about how we repurpose, not repurposing content, but we repurpose that story. Like how do we help someone feel like it is easy to make video through a quick social media post versus a long form article versus a help article versus a video for YouTube or versus a podcast versus, you know, any different medium that you can throw at it. And how do we tell them that in different ways, right? Like it's easy to make, it's easy to make videos and here easy means quickly, right? Or it's easy to make videos and easy means it doesn't have to be expensive or easy means you can do it, right? Like I feel like there's lots of different, it's the same story but you're kind of turning it around and looking at every every angle of it. Yeah, and you're reinforcing that message overall. I think the cool part about story pillars, and this is something that I thought about for a very long time, especially when I was at Shopify, was that the overarching sort of message that everything else falls underneath too. Like if we've got pillars, what is it supporting, right? And for me, the overarching theme of the publication that we had had was what can you do when technology gets out of the way? Right. So you have a broad theme and then you've got the pillars that support what that broader theme is going to be. And then that's the foundation of your communication strategy across all of your mediums. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your pregame. Now we've gone broad. We have the pillars. We understand what we're doing. We have an individual piece. It's boiled all the way down to this. Awesome. Tell me about your pregame. How have we gotten to the piece in the first place? And then what are you doing before you evaluate that piece? And then we'll break into the piece. All right. Awesome. And I, 
I'm going to call myself out. I told you this in our uh, call yesterday, but just for, for everyone watching as well, this is dusting off some skills for me a little bit. <laughs> since It's been a while since I've directly edited a piece. So I'm really excited. This will be, this is going to be really fun. A lot of times I see things either much earlier in the process or even just, you know, kind of when we're at the strategic level. But yeah, so before we edit the piece, hopefully it lines up with all of those other things that we just talked about, right? So it was put into the editorial calendar for a really specific reason. It already has a a specific audience that it lines up to. We probably already have a call to action in mind, like an idea of whether that's directly a button in the article or whether that's more of like, what do we want them to do after this article, right? Like, what do we want their next step to be? And like, it, you know, they might take whatever next step, like whatever next step they're going to take, but what would sort of be the ideal? Um, so have that in mind. So hopefully like all of that is like set in place and we kind of know like why we've made this piece. And then as far as like just real tactically, like before I sit down to edit a piece, I'm probably gonna, I'm gonna make sure it's quiet. <laughs> I'm going to either turn on wordless music or just make sure it's like super silent because I get distracted really easily, which I think is also probably reflected in how I edit a piece. I like bounce all over the place. So apologies in advance, ADHD brain. Um, (laughs) I'm going to get like, I'm going to get some water. I'm just going to kind of set up my area because I really need to like sit down and focus on it for a solid, pretty much until, until the flow is over. So like for a solid hour or two. I think in order to really get a grasp, but yeah, tactically that's it. It's just sort of like, okay, this is blocked off on my calendar. I'm turning off all my Slack notifications. This is, we're going to really read this piece and figure out how we can make it better. That's one of my favorite questions to ask because I know when, when I do my first read throughs, I will always make note of where I disengage and then like, why did I disengage? It's not a matter of, because Well, that's the thing, too, is when you think about it, right, everybody's got ADHD brain these days, right? I'm surprised we still have eight people on the call right now. Thank you so much, live audience. So the idea of making note of when I check out kind of makes me think if if this is my job to read this thing. Right. And I'm interested in it, right? Like, because I also write about these things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What I mean, for somebody who's just casual on this, you know, what, what are they thinking? So. Cool. All right. So you've done that. You've yeah. tuned everything out. Oh, and often because A, because I'm a little old school, but B, because um, I used to commute in and out from an office, like lots of people, but via public transit. And so I would do this on the subway is I print it out. Nice. <laughs> What's the mindset shift between the two things? Like why? Why, why do I print it out? Yeah. Um, so I can't write as quickly and as neatly as I can type. And so it stops me from over editing before I've gotten into the piece. So I feel like Mm. this way I can really like, I can still record my initial reactions, which because I agree, I do the same thing. I I like to note like how something hit me the very first time I read it, where I checked out. If like we got to a certain point and I still don't feel like I know what the piece is about because later on, I'm when I do know what the piece is about, I'll forget that. Right. So it like, it lets me do that in red pen but it keeps me from going through and doing things like uh, like beginning to move paragraphs around already or right. deleting entire sections or like correcting the spelling or the grammar. I think what's neat about that and, and what it boils down to is you're setting limitations on yourself in the editorial process, right? Your ink has value to it. 
Erin Balsa was on a few few episodes back, and she said that when she edits, a lot of what she'll do her first read through is actually on her phone. And I thought that was brilliant because that's where a lot of people are going to be reading, but it also gives limitation to how she's going to type or edit or make that feedback as well. So I always love that question for that reason. If you can share your screen, we can jump straight into it. And that's it for the podcast edition of The Cutting Room. If you'd like to watch while Robin edits live, click on the link in the show notes and you'll be brought directly to the edit on our YouTube channel. If you'd like to attend the next live session, sign up for our email list at thecontentstudio.com forward slash The Cutting Room or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you again, and we'll see you in the next one.